So this morning, if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And we are finally starting to get to the point where Jesus is starting to become a lot more active. Uh, we're kind of at the inauguration of that. All Up until this point, it's kind of almost been a uh, uh, prelude, the birth of Jesus, all of those things that were happening in that time frame. Then we see G- John the Baptist coming and preparing the way and baptizing those for repentance. We see Jesus coming to John and saying, it's right for me to do this, to be baptized so that we can fulfill all righteousness. Even though John tried to push him away and say, no, 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 you should be baptizing me. If this baptism is of repentance, then you need to be baptizing me, not me, you. And he's like, that's okay. This is to fulfill the righteousness, which we spoke about is how um, it's a way of Jesus showing his followers what they are to do, to move forward in baptism. And so praise God, we are likely to have uh, some baptisms coming up soon. And so we're grateful for that. And um, so we see those happening those things happening. We see the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus after his baptism, and we hear the Father speaking out, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And last week we talked about how that verse and what that that is talking about and how it is this incredible gift that it's not only Jesus who is the beloved Son, but all throughout the New Testament after that, we are called the the children of God, co-heirs with Christ, and to where if we are found in Christ, we are given the exact same honor of God saying, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And it's through the work of Christ that we are able to receive that. And so now we are coming up to this time that is really going to set into motion Jesus's ministry. And so uh, you've most likely read this before. You've most likely heard teaching on it before. But let's uh, read this together and let's dive into the word of the Lord this morning. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, going through verse 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, as well as on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for us being able to gather here. Uh, Lord, we pray that um, we are a blessing to one another in our time as we uh, sing, as we uh, hear your word proclaimed. Lord, teach us, shape us, mold us, guide us. Holy Spirit, uh, may the word of the Lord not be found void in our lives, that we may uh, be 
uh, be changed by hearing your word uh, preached, by, uh, by interacting with the word of God. Father, may we leave this place uh, with more desire to let others know of this blessed hope which we have found. Shut my mouth where if I am to speak out of turn in any place and give us, uh, may we be a blessing to you as we are blessed through the reading of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what's going on in this story? We see Jesus going out in the wilderness, right? We see him fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, I appreciate that the text says, and he was hungry. Uh, one would imagine so, but often in a lot of these ancient stories, they would have their heroes be like, he fasted for 40 days and nights and wasn't even hungry. And, but this shows the humanity of Christ, that he has gone out to be tested. And why would Jesus go out to be tested? If you know things about um, the ancient cultures, if you if you've studied um, them much at all, you will find that often the son of the king, he is tested to see if he is worthy of his father's throne. If you've seen the movie Black Panther, uh, Marvel movie, this is a modern reference that maybe you can grasp. Uh, king T- or T'Challa, the guy who is Black Panther, he his father died, who was the king of this nation of Wakanda, and he is he must go through a test in order to see if he is worthy. He actually fights off a challenger in order to prove his right to the throne, and so we are seeing something similar to where Jesus is being tested in a, in a sense by of a trial by combat to see whether he actually is worthy and whether he will stand up. And just like Matthew does in so much of his story, he is tying this to the Old Testament. As we talked about in the genealogy, how Matthew is really pointing and showing that he, Jesus is the son of David that was promised, that promised king who would have a uh, nation He would have a rule over the entire earth that would never end of peace. It would never, they would never know the end of the peace that would come. Matthew spends the first chapter uh, outlining how Jesus is that son of David who was promised. But he also spends time showing that Jesus fulfills things that Moses did not do. And he will continue to do that. He shows how Jesus fulfills all of the things that uh, were promised before. And yet, Uh, And he also fulfills all of the archetypes, all of the forms that we see from Adam to uh, David. And here he is showing that Jesus is the true and better Israel. The true and better, in a sense, people of God. And so the 40 days and nights in the wilderness should then call our minds to the 40 years in the wilderness that Israel wandered after they were freed from uh, Egypt, the exodus Um, It's uh, accounted for in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, and Deuteronomy. And so we, if you are interested in that, go back to the beginning of the Bible and start reading through that and look at this. And I'm not just pulling this out to say like, oh yeah, 40, 40, you know, all these numbers, they correlate. It's more than that. And I'll show you in in a few minutes. In the wilderness though, Israel... When they were hungry, they sinned against God. They rejected God. There were times when they tried to uh, create an uprising against Moses in order to be able to go back to slavery in Egypt because they were hungry and they did not trust that God would provide. And so we are being set up and seeing that Jesus himself was in the wilderness and he was hungry and now the tempter has come. 
to try to draw him away. What will the Son of God do? And so we see now the tempter, which is that same serpent from the Garden of Eden who tempted Adam and Eve and led them astray, introducing the original sin and therefore sin to every other human who has ever lived aside from Jesus. This is that same serpent who has now come before the Son of God. Will this new, the true and better Adam, will he be able to be the final Adam? And where the serpent has succeeded in every other time, even the chosen people of Yahweh, even with Israel, even with Abraham, even with David, even with uh, Daniel, with all of the great people throughout the Bible, the serpent has caused them to fall. Even those who have been set aside by God. So what does he do? He starts by attacking Jesus's identity and his power. And he says, if you are the son of man, if you are the son of God, then you're hungry. Just change these stones to bread. Feed yourself. You can do it. You and I both know you can do it. Just do it. And in doing so, Satan is using the tactic of attacking the human frailty of hunger and appetite. And it's the exact same temptation that he used against Adam. It looks good. Like, this will bring you pleasure. This is good for food. You're hungry, aren't you? Eat it. It's okay. And what does Jesus do, though? He quotes scripture to Satan. But he quotes from Deuteronomy. It's not, uh, it's not how we would often think about it. But if you really go through and study all the times that Jesus quotes the Old Testament, Deuteronomy is his favorite book to quote. It is an important book of the Old Testament because by and large, it is almost a, a theological historical retelling of everything that had happened up to that point. It was Moses calling upon the Israelites to remember what God has done and to continue it forward. As, as Moses is nearing death, he is calling on them to remember what has happened and to move forward in honoring the Lord. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which is a reference to when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness And the primary lesson that they were supposed to learn is that God will provide for their needs, that our sustenance is from God and not from food. But what did Israel do? They rose up against Moses and tried to flee back to Egypt. But what does Jesus do? He resists the temptation and succeeds where Israel failed. But he's not done in his testing. Because then the serpent takes him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And he sets him up above all, and he says, okay, you quoted scripture, but if you really really are the son of God, just cast yourself down. Because, and Satan can quote scripture too. And then he quotes from Psalm 91, which is the psalm we read as our call to worship this morning. He says, his angels will protect you. He won't let your foot strike the ground. The Bible says it, as it, it, it's written there as well, isn't it? That's the same argument you just used. And here it is written here. But he, misquotes, he, he misinterprets the text. He twists it to try to get Jesus to fall for it. And what, 
that psalm is actually one, if you, if you were listening to the, to the words of that psalm, it is one that proclaims God's great power by telling of all the ways that he will protect those who come to him for protection, who come to him earnestly to seek him. From war and plague, from pestilence and beasts, the Lord will maintain and protect those who seek him for their shelter. He proves his love by protecting, by offering that protection. And then Satan twists this and basically says, if God really does love you, if you really are the son of God, he'll prove it by saving you. He says it right there in the scriptures. And so this temptation for Jesus is ultimately one that is geared towards his knowledge of the scriptures and his knowledge of the word of God and the will of God. And so how does Jesus respond? He responds with more scriptures. In fact, from Deuteronomy about the Israelites and what they learned. He says, uh, and this time he's quoting from chapter six in Deuteronomy, which is now a retelling of a lesson at a time where Israel put God to the test in the wilderness. They were thirsty and they said, if God is really among us, then let him give us water. And that place ended up, if you read, uh, it's a retelling from Exodus 17. If you read there, it says that that place was then called Massa and Meribah because it was there that the Israelites put the Lord their God to the test. And so then when Moses is retelling this and giving, telling them, reminding them what is righteous, he then says what Jesus quotes, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test like you did at Massa and Meribah. That's what the Deuteronomy passage fully says. And so Satan is calling on Jesus, tempting him, saying, if God really loves you, he'll prove it. Have him, have him prove it. And Jesus then resists that temptation to test God's love for him. And again, succeeds where Israel fails. And this takes him to his final test. Now in this final temptation, the serpent changes tactics. Instead of questioning Jesus's identity or power, Satan plays the biggest card he holds and offers Jesus the glory, the adoration, and the authority of all the kingdoms of the world. And all of this will be Jesus's if only he bows before the serpent. Now, you may have read this and thought in uh, this certain way, or you might have been taught in this certain way, that this was a false promise from Satan, that he didn't have the authority to do these things, to offer the kingdoms of the earth. But we, I would actually push back on that. I would say he actually does, he did have that authority. Not that God does not have total and final authority, which he does, but Satan has been given a certain authority over the nations. We see in, throughout the New Testament that he's called the God of this age or the prince of this world, talking of Satan after Jesus. We see in the Old Testament in Daniel that demonic entities are uh, spoken about as if they control pagan nations. So we see that there's this dark authority. And if this really is a true test and temptation, there has to be a real offer here. So we have to conclude then that there is a certain authority that the Lord had given to Satan over the pagan nations, over their sinful practices. And what Satan is offering to Jesus is the glory that Satan is receiving from these nations through their sinful worship. 
But why would this be appealing to Jesus? Now let's think about this. Let's, let's look back to Daniel when Daniel was prophesying about this one who looks like the Son of Man who's sitting at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. In Daniel chapter 7, he talks about this Son of Man being given all of the nations of the earth. He talks about that being the inheritance. We see throughout the uh, New Testament, we see even here in Matthew's gospel, this focus on the nations, those outside of Israel and what is being brought in. And this is the promise to Jesus. This inheritance is the nations. But what must he endure in order to receive this inheritance? He must endure the cross. And he must adore the full wrath of God poured out on the sins of the people. Now, if you know your New Testament, if you know the story of Jesus' life, there is one thing that Jesus pleads with the Father to take from him. And it is facing the wrath of God for the sin of the world. In the garden, he says, if there is any way that this cup can pass from me, Lord, please, Father, please, but not my will, but your your will be done. And so Satan was offering to Jesus the very thing that stressing over he would sweat blood later in his life. He was offering him his inheritance without having to endure suffering and the wrath of God. Now, once you think about it that way, this last temptation, all of a sudden, that hits a little different. When you look and recognize how much angst, how much anxiety Jesus had about facing the wrath of God and then seeing that he, knowing what he was going to face, still chose to stay faithful. When this, when this hit me, I was down at Leonardo's studying and this hit me and I'm like, I'm starting to tear up. Because this is incredible. And all I could say was, thank you, Jesus. Because without Jesus resisting this, this temptation, the, most likely the greatest temptation of his life, because it was speaking to the greatest stress of his life. Without him facing that, I could never be saved. You could never be saved. And so Jesus once more stands up to the serpent in the testing, trusting his father's will for him. Rejecting the easy way out. Amen. And this was not some false promise of Satan. This was real. And Jesus responds by rebuking the serpent, sending him away and quoting one final passage of scripture. And again, from Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. When we look at Israel's history, we know that they did not listen to Moses at all. It didn't take very long. They had another good leader after Moses, Joshua. And then after Joshua died and the elders who were with him died, then we get to the book of Judges. And we see time after time, the people of God, the ones that Yahweh saved from slavery, the ones that Yahweh claimed for his own people, again and again turned to other gods to worship them. Over and over. And then they would cry out to God for rescue. Once he would remove his hand for protection from them because they weren't. They didn't want it anymore. They wanted the other gods. 
But what did Jesus do? He stood firm. He resisted the temptation to worship another God. And he stood firm and succeeded in all of the ways that Israel failed. So in this, what do we see? What can we see for ourselves? Often people will, uh, they'll take this and they'll kind of twist it in a sense to be like, just quote scripture at Satan and he'll flee from you. But Satan makes it clear. I can quote, you can quote scripture too. He's not, he's not necessarily afraid of the words. So what can we take from this though? We can look to Jesus as a model for how to resist temptation to some extent. Although Jesus, again, he is other. He is the God man, but he faced temptation as the man. And all of our great spiritual forerunners in the Bible, from Abraham to Moses to David, Daniel, all of them have gone through times of testing. And it's because of that testing that then they learn that dependence upon God to win the day is the way to overcome the tests. It's not in their own strength. It's in God's strength. At some point, we should do a study through the life of Abraham because he is one, like for being the chosen one of God, there is some really messed up things he does. He not just once, but twice says that his wife is actually his sister and then sends her off to the king and lets the king marry her as one of his wives. Abraham would rather, because he was afraid of being killed by the king in order for the king to take uh, Sarah as his wife. We see time and again that God threatens to curse that nation and he reveals it to the king who had taken her. You have done evil in my sight by taking this woman to be your wife because she's already the wife of another. And the king comes to Abraham and is like, what are you doing? You're going to kill me. Tell the truth. And this is the one to whom God gave the promise that through his offspring, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And what are we seeing? The nations of the earth are about to be cursed because of Abraham. So we see these things happening. But then, so God continues to remind him, walk before me and be blameless. Be my representative in the earth so that the nations may be blessed. And eventually, through this testing, Abraham learns to depend on God. And when God tells him, sacrifice the promised son, the one that I gave you, you give him to me. And Abraham finally responds with faith and Yahweh stops him and offers a lamb to be sacrificed instead. Abraham, through learning to depend on God, then was able to overcome that test. And that's not to say that God is the tempter. We see in the first verse, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested, but then the tempter comes. And so while God will allow temptations to come into our lives, God himself is not the originator of those temptations. He is not the one who causes you to sin. You do that of your own free will. And so we see here, especially in this passage, but we'll see over and over and over, that Jesus passes the tests that we failed, that Israel failed, that Abraham failed, that Adam failed, that David failed. Jesus passes all of these tests. And so though, if you're really wanting some practical help in this, if you're wanting a couple of practical ways uh, to help face temptation, here are some takeaways from Jesus' example. Jesus overcame the first temptation 
by depending on God. Jesus trusted that God would sustain him even in a painful or an uncomfortable situation. And too often, we, don't, we believe that God doesn't actually have our best interests in mind. And that's ultimately where temptation and sin comes from. We think that God doesn't want what's best for us and that we can decide that for ourselves and we actually know better and think better about what is best for us rather than what God has said. And that is the basis of all sin is that we don't trust God. That's where temptation comes from. Because if we fully trusted God, if we really did, then our temptation would not draw us away from it, would not lead us away because we, like Jesus, we can look to the word of God and say, nah, 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 nah. The will of the Father is so different from what you are trying to draw me to. That's a, uh, sorry, that just made me think, might be, my, uh, Joshua, he started doing that. No, 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 no. It's like, hey, Joshua, you, you need to eat that. No, 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 no. Anyways, I shouldn't have done that. That was an aside. I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> Um, but Jesus then overcame the second temptation by having a knowledge of God and his word. We are foolish and prideful if we think that we can skip spiritual disciplines or studying the theology, the word of God, or understanding what is right doctrine and poor doctrine, and then easily overcome temptation that faces us. How can we know the will of God if we don't study his word? That's the point. How can we know the will of God if we don't actually know God? And so you might hear, uh, it's a refrain I've heard is like, doctrine divides. But we have to know good doctrine. Sound doctrine divides truth from error. And we have to be willing to study this, to put in some effort, to train our minds as well as our hearts in this. Because our hearts, we're told in Jeremiah, is desperately wicked. Who can control it? But as we train our minds in the knowledge of the Lord, as our hearts and our minds finally get in sync together, we actually believe it. Because you can know something and not actually fully believe it. And you can, in a sense, have a great passion for something, but actually not really know all that much about it. And so your passion is very shallow. But once those come into sync together, you have a deep love for the things of God because you keep diving into the things of God and finding there's more and more and more and it is incredible and beautiful and soul warming. It warms your soul. It saves you. It gives you new life and new energy. And then that overflows into providing you with strength to face temptation because it comes from a strength that is rooted in God and not in your emotions and not in your knowledge, but in those together in that belief that God is who he says he is. And so if you're fighting temptation and you're not digging in to the things of God, It could be ignorance, but if it's not ignorance, it's pride. Because you think you can, you can beat this on your own? You would be the first outside of Jesus to be able to stand up to the tempter on your own. All of us have fallen. 
So then Jesus, with the third temptation, he overcomes it by trusting God's plan. And when the tempter offered to give Jesus a great prize without having to face suffering, but at the cost of the honor and the glory of the Father, Jesus rejected the offer and told Satan to get lost. And so often, that is what temptation ultimately does. Um, whether it can be in whatever manner, if it's something that has to do with pleasure, like sex or food or whatever, it is this promise of this good thing, pleasure, without having to face the necessary responsibilities, the necessary uh, at times suffering that comes with it. God has designed sex to be in a marriage between a man and a woman who are dedicated to one another, who are covenanted to one another, who have made vows that should mean a lot more than what they mean nowadays. And so the gift of sex is a gift of something that we are given this beautiful gift but we are also given the right parameters in which to use it. But that means we actually have to sacrifice of ourselves to the other person in marriage. Our culture has cheapened sex. And so much, uh, it's, it's infiltrated the church as well. When we look at other temptations, we could, it could be overindulgence in things, it could be in wanting to gossip, and when you gossip about things, you are being promised this sense of fulfillment that comes from most likely making yourself feel like a better person. But it's an empty promise. And so you, when you sacrifice and you do the work of building a good relationship, you have the right to speak with that person about those things. When you actually care about people, you have the right to speak on their behalf when you have worked to establish that. There is sacrifice that is involved with these things that we are tempted to do with, if we are to do them in the ways that God has given to us. In the New Testament, we see uh, it said that all things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. And so God has given many, many good gifts, and it's not the gifts that are the problem. It's the way that we abuse the gifts that is the problem. So if we desire to overcome temptation, these are the foundation upon, we mu- upon which we must stand firm. Uh, again, to reiterate, we must depend on God for his sustaining power, for his already defeat of the serpent through the perfect life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. We must also be knowledgeable in the word of God and sound doctrine because even Satan knows the Bible and he can quote it. Do you realize how many false teachers there are who quote the Bible? It's massive. It's immense. Nearly all of them quote the Bible. Our culture quotes the Bible at us, trying to get us to fold to the culture and to, to, these, to the 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 ways that the culture wants to go. And it is our responsibility to stand firm in the word of God. And sometimes that's going to, often it's going to look like standing firm against those who are more, uh, if we're going to talk politics, on the liberal side, but it's also going to mean standing firm on the word of God against those on the conservative side who are going to abuse the word of God and twist it in the same way Satan did. 
It happens on both sides, brothers and sisters. And we should be appalled when we see people doing that. And it happens in churches. And we should be appalled when we see that happen. We should desire for unity on Christ and him alone. But that should not keep us from addressing the ways that people act like a serpent and twisting the word of God for their own agenda. We must also trust God's good plan for us, that he has our best interests in mind when he gives us instructions to follow. They are good things that God has done. He has our best interests. And we have to actually trust that. Otherwise, we will fall. We will fall. If there is any seed of doubt, Satan is called the deceiver. Uh, Another, uh, the word Satan actually means the accuser. And we see in here, he's the accuser of Jesus. If you really are the son of God, we see in Job, he's the accuser of God. You're not fair in how you treat Job. And he's also the accuser of us. He brings accusations against us. And we must trust in what the Lord has said, or we will start to hear those accusations from Satan, and we'll fall to him. There are times when those who are truly saved can doubt their salvation. And often it's because you actually have an awareness of your sin, which is a good thing. But then Satan comes in and says, you see what you're doing there? That's not, that's not like a Christian. You must not actually be saved. God doesn't love you. And we must be willing to stand firm and say, you're right, that, that, that does not represent Christ. And yet, for some reason, Christ has chosen and brought me into the family. And even though I sin, I have a great intercessor who through his, not simply just his death where he bore the wrath of God, but through his resurrection and overcoming death and then his ascension to be at the right hand of the Father, I have a great intercessor who can stand between me and God. And your accusations against me bear no weight because I through Jesus and given an audience with God, the Father. And so when temptation comes, when the tempter calls, remember those things. And on a separate note, also remember, you're not Jesus. So you can't stand stand up to the tempter alone. There is a reason why all throughout the New Testament, when it talks about us who have been called out, those who have been made Christians, it talks about community, It talks about the ways that we are to treat one another, that we're to call one another to holiness, that we are to uh, exhort one another, that we are to rebuke one another when sin comes up so that we can win that brother or sister back so that they may see it, their sin, and repent. That is our goal when we call out sin. Not Not to be like, oh, you dirty sinner, but to say, brother, sister, you're rejecting God in the ways that you're living your life. Repent, come back. We want you here. So if you're a Christian, you have been brought into a family that is striving toward the same goal as what you should be striving towards, and that is to become more like Christ. Share your burdens with us. Don't cling to your pride so much that you allow the infection of sin to fester in the darkness 
and take control of you. Because that's what happens. Sin grows and strengthens when it's in the dark. But when you bring your sin to your brothers and sisters through confession and talking to people, you're dragging that sin out into the light so that it can be killed by the light of the gospel. And when we are actually Christians and someone comes to us and confesses their sin, we don't say, oh, wow, that's weird. Oh, man, you're, you're pretty. <laughs> oh, wow, that's a weird one that I don't struggle with. No, it's brother, sister. It's excellent that you brought this forward. Now let's pray, rely on the Holy Spirit, and let's talk about practical steps that we are going to work through together to help make sure that you are going to be called out of the sin. And that's another reason why you shouldn't know the scriptures so that you can use the word of God to call people to repentance, to show them why, um, if they need it, why they should be repenting. Knowing the word of God gives you the strength, the words to say, the, the knowledge to be able to then also call them, if you repent of this, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Another thing to remember, you're not Jesus and the serpent isn't God. Satan is not omnipresent and he cannot tempt everyone himself. So you're likely not being tempted by Satan, which a lot of people are like, oh, the devil's really coming for me. Satan's really coming for me today. You're likely not being tempted by Satan himself because he's not God. The only time that we actually have an account of Satan himself tempting and leading someone astray is Jesus right here. But you also need to recognize that the more you feed sin, the more it gets a stranglehold on your life. And sometimes... Your temptation to sin isn't, isn't, a, uh, isn't simply because of like, demons coming in and tempting you, which maybe we don't struggle with that. More, uh, our brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement will have that uh, inclination a little bit more. But often, because of the ways that sin has just rooted in our lives, it's our natural desire. And unless we are given that new heart by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, our natural desire will be to sin. And even after we are given the new heart, we still face the consequences of the sin that we built up before. If you're addicted to something before you become a Christian, you're likely to still be addicted to that afterwards. And so your temptation is not necessarily Satan coming to try to tempt you away. It might just simply be that you have created a dependency in your body that has allowed for a stronghold this, uh, yeah, for, to allow for something that has to be broken down. It has to be strategically fought against to break down and free you from. Uh, another thing quickly to remember, Satan is a defeated foe. At this point, and then all throughout the rest of the Gospels, all of the Gospels, we see that Jesus has already won the battle. They know that Jesus has won the battle. When he comes in, uh, further on in Matthew, when, it, when uh, Jesus comes before, it's two demoniacs, two demon-possessed men uh, with legion and beat, uh, you know the story, cast us into the pigs, like don't, don't. But what do they say when they first come to him? Jesus, what are you doing here? Have you come to torment us before our appointed time? They know they're ending. They know that Jesus has already won the battle. And every time they lash out, it's just death throws. And so know that while evil and Satan can look so strong, Jesus is far stronger and has already won the battle. 
We see in the book of Revelation that uh, Satan, as the great dragon, rises up one last time with his great army, and he is destroyed by Jesus and his army of angels. And that is the final destruction of Satan. And so our foe already knows what their future is. It's to lose. And they are seeking to hurt God, to draw away the glory of God as much as they can. But for those of us who are found in Christ, the only true power they have over us is deception. They can deceive us. So know the word of the Lord. Trust in God that he will provide, that he will give you wisdom and courage in the battle. So Christian, when the tempter calls, remember this. Jesus has been exactly where you are and has succeeded. He has given you a model so you are not ignorant of how to overcome temptation. Lean into God for the strength to overcome and look to the word of God for wisdom in how to respond to the temptation. Remember also that Jesus has already defeated the tempter. You're not powerless in your temptation. Satan does not own you if you are in Christ because Christ and his righteous deeds has purchased you from the clutches of the evil one. You're not strong enough to free yourself from temptation and sin in your own strength, but Jesus is strong enough. Another thing to remember is that Jesus has called you to be part of his people. You are not alone in your testing. You have a family that encompasses millennia. You have 2,000 years worth of family who has come before you. And you have family that covers the entire earth. You're not alone. And you have this family here as well. And it is when we are absent from church, when we stay away, that we don't have that family to be part of, to belong to, to strengthen us, to build us up, to help us overcome the tempter. Don't be afraid to bring others into your struggles. You're not strong enough to bear this alone. And that's okay. Invite us to share it so that you may be freed from your sin. Finally, remember this. Jesus is good. He is powerful. And he desires your complete freedom from sin. You can run to him and he will help you. About 500 years ago, the world was forever changed. A German monk, he came across the excesses of the Catholic Church, and that riled up something within him. He wrote out 95 ideas that he wanted to debate with other Catholics to try to figure out why things are the way they were. They're called the 95 Theses. This, This German monk, his name is Martin Luther, And in posting that, he didn't intend for this, but in posting that, he sparked what is now known as the Reformation, which we are benefactors of. If we're not part of the Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church or any of the other ancient, ancient churches, we are benefactors of this. And in the Reformation, they sought to unearth what the Catholic Church had buried under tradition and uh, all of these extra things that they have added. But he wrote this song, and I just want to read the lyrics to you. It's called A Mighty Fortress. A mighty fortress is our God. 
a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. God's truth abideth still, or the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. May those words be encouraging to us as we face the tempter. He is powerful, and yet Christ is more powerful.